Clement. Hello, humans of the world. Hello, humans of Minneapolis, of Minnesota. It's me, Ellie Krug, on Ellie 2.0 Radio on AM 950. Good Monday morning to you. Monday morning after Thanksgiving. I hope that you had a great holiday. Um, and I hope that it was filled with friends and family and food and not too much uh, acrimony over the dinner table. Well, welcome to LA 2.0 Radio, where we talk about idealism and idealists. I've got a heck of a show. We have the big interview with Gene Weingarten, um, a wonderful two-time Pulitzer Prize-winning writer who's just come out with a book, and I'm featured in that book. So you may have heard me talk about that uh, several weeks ago. So we're going to actually interview Gene. Um, and, but before we do that, I want to talk with you again about another <clears throat> idealist, uh, this one who uh, is historical in our country uh, and um, who was from uh, the early civil rights era, who, era, excuse me, who, like uh, Bayard Rustin, who I talked about a couple of weeks ago, and Fanny Lou Hamer, who I talked about about a month and a half ago, uh, are relatively unknown, um, but, un- but nonetheless exceptionally important idealist who made a difference for civil rights. I am talking about a woman named Irene Morgan, who, when she was just 27 years old, boarded a Greyhound bus in Gloucester, Virginia, in July of 1944, after visiting her mother. She had gone gone back home to Virginia from her home in Baltimore uh, because she had 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 a miscarriage and she wanted to go home and recover um, with her mom in Virginia. So she boarded the bus in Gloucester intending to go back to Baltimore um, where she had two small children and she had a job at an aircraft assembly plant where they made B-26 Marauders. So remember, this is 1944, July of 44. Things are going well with the war effort. Um, And this is, uh, you may recall, that Bayard Rustin and others were successful in getting uh, President Roosevelt to agree that it would be all right to agree to allow African Americans, black color humans, to work in uh, in war production plants. Okay, so I'm kind of trying to put some threads back together here for you from other uh, shows that I've been do- doing. So on that July 1944 day, Irene Morgan dutifully. Uh, went to the quote-unquote colored section. I don't like using that word, but I need to use it for historical context. Went to the colored section of the bus. However, however, as the bus progressed on its trip northward in Virginia, the bus became more crowded, and a white-color couple um, were without seats. At that point, that prompted the bus driver to tell Irene that she needed to give up her seat and move further to the back of the bus. Now, I want you, my fellow humans, to imagine this, um, that you are at a Starbucks or a Caribou, and, it's in the, and the store is getting crowded, and the manager comes and tells you that you need to give up your seat for another customer who is of a different skin color, of a preferred skin color. Um, and this is the equivalent in modern-day America of what Irene Morgan had to go through. Um, so, But Irene, at 27 years old, refused to give up her seat. The bus driver drove ahead to where a sheriff was waiting. 
Uh, the sheriff came on the bus and attempted to give Irene a paper citation for, for violating Virginia's Jim Crow laws. Irene tore up the paper and threw it out the bus window. The sheriff then um, leaned in to grab Irene, at which point Irene kicked the sheriff um, in his crotch. Hurting, the officer retreated and called for reinforcements. Again, Irene fought back, but eventually, of course, she was arrested. Later, Irene pled guilty to resisting arrest. She paid a $100 fine in 1944. That was a lot of money. But she pled not guilty to violating Virginia's segregation laws, which she called unlawful. Do I need to remind you? 27 years old. Eventually, she had lawyers through the NAACP, which included Thurgood Marshall. Um, uh, and uh, as we all know... Uh, Thurgood Marshall argued the Brown v. Board education case, and he later became the first African-American justice on the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, by the way, we've only had two uh, justices uh, who have ever been African-American. Um, uh, so Irene's case progressed through the Virginia state courts, and the Virginia Supreme Court refused to strike down Virginia's Jim Crow laws. Um, and But... Um, as the case progressed, uh, Thurgood Marshall appealed to the United States Supreme Court, and in 1946, so this is two years after Irene's arrest, this after the war is ending, has ended, um, two years in 1946, the Supreme, U.S. Supreme Court ruled six to one in Irene's favor, holding that the United States Interstate Commerce Clause, which is <clears throat> in, in the Constitution, which is about... Um, uh, that uh, no uh, state shall uh, be able to control interstate commerce over above that of the United States. Uh, the Supreme Court ruled that the interstate commerce clause controlled and that it trumped Jim Crow laws relative to interstate travel on buses. <clears throat> now, some of you know that one of my very favorite heroes, I mean, true to my heart, deep heroes is Robert F. Kennedy. And when Bobby Kennedy was the attorney general, he used the Commerce Clause to strike down further segregation laws at lunch counters, arguing that if you segregated the lunch counters, it slowed down the progress of commerce. The Supreme Court accepted that argument, and thus lunch counter segregation went away as well. Now, <clears throat> you may recall from hearing um, on my piece about Bayard Rustin, uh, that this is where he then picked up the baton. He picked up the baton in 1946-47 after Irene Morgan's case. And Bayard Rustin and others became, became the very first Freedom Riders in 1947, 15 years before most people believed that Freedom Riders um, were riding the buses. And, and I need to let you know, listeners, this is not all history that Ellie Krug, you know, knows um, – um, just off the top of her head. I'm doing research. One of the – this show is a lot of work, and I'm not complaining, please. Um, but what I love about the show is that it makes me learn more about American history, more about the civil rights movement, more about humans generally. Um, you heard about the, you know, Galabi gang a couple of weeks ago in India. I had no idea that, the, that those folks existed. 
Later, after all of this was over, uh, Irene Morgan would remarry and relocate to Queens, New York, where she became uh, uh, became involved in something so mundane as daycare, uh, running a daycare business and a dry cleaning business. Still, um, she eventually completed her high school degree in her 60s. She got her college degree, and then at age 72, she got a master's degree in urban planning. So not only was she a hero in at age 27 – uh, shaping American history, but she turns out to be this incredible role model for all humans later on in life. I'm starting to tear up. I'm sorry. Um, her courage, Irene, uh, Irene's uh, courage did not go unnoticed. In the year 2000, Gloucester, Virginia, where she um, had started out on her bus trip, honored her on its 350th anniversary. And in 2001, President Clinton awarded Irene Morgan the Presidential Citizen Medal. He said that when she boarded that bus in 1944, 57 years earlier, quote, she took a first step on a journey that would change America forever, unquote. Irene Morgan, an idealist, an unsung hero, and a beacon of, re- of resisting oppression. We would be wise to study her and others of her era in the 30s and the 40s. People who are unsung, and I've, I've given you some of their names this fall. People unsung who were doing incredibly important and brave work when it was not the bandwagon time to be doing that. I think that's really the time when people... When the real idealists show up, I'm sorry, there are many, many, many idealists. Don't mean to be critical of idealists. But when it's not popular, when it's not, it's not part of the soup of the day, and you are out there doing the incredibly difficult work, I think that is the true test of idealism as well as the true test of human character. I hope you like what you're hearing on this show. If you do, visit my website at elliekrug.com. Follow me on Twitter. The handle is at, at Ellie Krug. Follow me on Instagram. The handle is at Ellie J. Krug. Um, and uh, email me at elliejkrug at gmail.com if you'd like to talk with me. I'll be back in a second with uh, the big interview. Thanks. At Better Futures Minnesota, our purpose is to fuel and guide our men's desire to turn their lives around and walk a new path toward better health and success. We are intent on changing the costly systems and practices that produce poor results and perpetuate the chaos and cycles of dependency experienced by men who have faced incarceration. We are building a movement that supports personal transformation and a healthy, vibrant community of men. Visit us at BetterFuturesMinnesota.com to learn how you can support our movement. Brending Electrolysis on Grand Avenue in St. Paul has been a leader in permanent hair removal for people of all skin types and backgrounds for over 30 years, celebrating diversity and priding themselves on finding the right treatment plan for each client's individual needs, regardless of race or gender. Services include electrolysis, body waxing, facials, microneedling, and permanent makeup. Book your 60-minute complimentary consultation, including a 15-minute treatment today, for beautiful, lasting results. Visit BrendingElectrolysis.com.
We're back on AM 950 LE 2.0 radio. So a uh, read up on Irene Turner, please, and learn more about what incredible things she did at age 27. And now I'm really thrilled. It's time for the big interview. I have somebody exceedingly special for a big interview. Um, Someone I've talked about previously because his book came out where I'm in it. Uh, Gene Weingarten, you're on the line with us, are you not? I am, and it's good to be here, Ellie. Oh, Gene, I am just, I cannot tell you how thrilled I am to have you on this show. And just for the audience's sake, let me just give him just a little bit about you. I mean, you, um, uh, you have a column that runs or at times runs in the Washington Post. For a long time, you were a regular columnist for them. But more importantly, you're a two-time Pulitzer Prize winning writer. Um, and if I'm looking at Wikipedia, right, you're the only person to win the Pulitzer Prize for feature writing twice. Um, and you've got a number of books out. And most importantly, I'm talking with you right now because you have a book out titled One Day, The Extraordinary Story of an Ordinary 24 Hours in America. Do I have all of that right? Uh, you have all of that right, except my column does appear every week in the Washington ah. Post. It's a, uh, it's a humor column called Below the Beltway. Below the Beltway. Okay. Well, that's just yeah. great. So, Gene, um, uh, you know, uh, you and I started a relationship, I mean, a professional relationship, of course, um, way back in uh, April of 2013. When I he- heard you doing an interview on WNEW, um, Bob Edwards was, you were on the show trying to get, he was trying to find out about this book that you were going to write. And the thing that I, I just absolutely vividly remember is he's asking you about this book. And you wouldn't, you wouldn't tell him what day the book was going to be about. And I mean, you held everybody hanging. Do you remember that interview? Uh, yes, I, I do. Bob and I were sort of kidding each other for a while and smiling about it. Uh, yes. Uh, should I, should I briefly describe what this book is? It might help. Please do, because it's that one day. Go ahead. Yep. Yeah. Um, I decided when I found myself approaching the mid sixties that I was getting complacent, so I decided that I wanted to give myself a challenge that I might not be able to pull off. It truly terrified me. Uh, and the idea was that I wanted to find a completely ordinary day in American history and then report the heck out of it in, the, in an effort to prove that there's no such thing as an ordinary day, that if you dig deep enough, you will find embedded in those 24 hours... Uh, all of the human condition, pathos, laughter, horror, tragedy, irony, you know, cosmic comeuppances. Um, and so to find that day, my editor and I went to a uh, oyster house <laughs> on, New, on New Year's Day 2013, and uh, we found a couple of children who pulled numbers out of a hat. We had, we had arranged three drawings. One of them was 31 days of the month, one of them was 12 months of the year, and one of them was the 21 years that we decided to limit this to. Okay. So we got a truly, truly random date, um, which happened to be December 28, 1986. Yep. <laughs> and and that was the date, and Edwards is like asking you on the radio, what is the date? And you're kind of, you kept uh, coming around on other other angles, but... And, and, of course, you and I both know that that date turned out to be my 30th uh, birthday, December 28, 1986. So It did. And, and the, the other thing that I should tell you, 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 you would have no reason to know this, but 
You were one of very few people in this book who found me as opposed to my finding them. Ah, okay. Uh, you know, you, you, you obviously contacted me um, when you realized that not only was this your birthday, but something happened on that day. Yep. No, in fact, I wrote you an email within an hour of hearing you on the radio. Right. And then within four hours, you wrote back and said, you're going to be in my book. I mean, which, of course, you know, I'd like, oh, sure. So, but um, then I read up on you and I realized that you uh, did keep your word about things. And so, so Gene, enough about me. Let's talk, talk about this book, okay? Talk about what, how did you go about doing it? And, and w tell us one or, one or two of the great stories that you found out of humans. One of the most interesting things that I found is that there were absolutely enormous, um, important, uh, dramatic things that happened that day. Some of them had gotten into the newspapers, some hadn't, but they were filled with drama. Uh, and then there were these little stories, seemingly trivial stories. Uh, and I use that word advisedly because with each one, when I dug into it, it became something much less than trivial. Um, and uh, to me, that's, that's some of the strengths of the book. You know, there are, there are murders in this book. Um, the story of AIDS is told by three people who died on that day, three very different types of people. Um, the end of the Cold War is told through the experience of one woman. Um, but uh, there, there are stories like yours, which I'm sure we'll get into, um, and one of my favorites of the of the small ones involved a couple in Long Island who met on that day for five minutes. They had come to a singles joint with different dates, and they looked at each other and thought, "Whoa!" And so they furtively exchanged phone numbers, and he said he would call her the next day and take her out. The next day, he didn't call. And so at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, she called him. She was not shy. Um, and uh, she said, well, are you going to take me out or not? He said, yeah, I guess so. So they went out, uh, had a nice night, went back to her house, both pretty drunk, and he fell asleep on her lap on the couch. And nothing happened between them except a kiss or two. Um and she managed to extricate her lap from his head and went to bed. Uh, the next day, they went to a party um, given by his boss. And they again got very drunk. <laughs> and at one point, she, she says to him, we love each other, don't we? And he said, I remember this is like the second time they've been together, basically. Right. And he said, yeah, yeah, I guess so. And she said, well, why don't we get engaged? And he said, yeah, that seemed like a good idea. And she said, well, why don't we tell everyone? And so he does his best to stand up and inform everybody that he's just gotten engaged to this beautiful woman by his side. The next day, the third day they were together, he shows up to her house and moves in. Oh, my God. And this was the first moment that this man discovered that his new bride-to-be had two teenage sons. <laughs> it, 
it hadn't come up, and they were not in the house the night before. And that's how the year 1986 ended. The astonishing thing is that they are still together. I mean, this was a ridiculously impossible way to begin a relationship. There's no conceivable way it would work, but it did. And they're this old couple now. They are incredibly happy together. It was a marriage that somehow worked. All right. Well, Gene, what a great, incredible story. We're going to have to take a break here. And when we come back, I want to talk more about the book. Um, listeners, we've been speaking with Gene Weingarten. He is the author of One Day, the Extraordinary Story of an Ordinary 24 Hours in America. Um, you're listening to me, Ellie Krug on Ellie 2.0 Radio. When we come back, we'll talk more with Gene about his incredible book. Thanks so very much. This is Ellie Krug from Ellie 2.0 Radio on Mondays from 7 to 8 a.m. Many listeners know that I founded Human Inspiration Works LLC, which trains on human inclusivity and on how to be welcoming, diverse humans. Today, organizations of all sizes find that they need to train team members on diversity and inclusion. I can do that. Many say that my trainings change the way they see the world. I'd love to help make your organization more welcoming. For more information, go to humaninspirationworks.com. Thank you. Better Futures Minnesota is a social enterprise which helps men achieve self-sufficiency and a better future for themselves and their communities. We need your help. By donating time or funds to our cause, you can support us and promote a healthier environment. By hiring our deconstruction crews for your next residential or commercial project and shopping or donating building materials or appliances to our reuse retail warehouse, you are supporting Better Futures Minnesota and your community. Please visit BetterFuturesMinnesota.com to learn more. And we're back. Back on LE 2.0 Radio on AM 950, we've been uh, interviewing or speaking with uh, uh, two-time Pulitzer Prize winner Gene Weingarten about his newest book out uh, titled One Day, The Extraordinary Story of an Ordinary 24 Hours in America. Gene, this book came out, what, uh, in in, uh, late October? Is that when it came out? Yep, just a few weeks ago. Okay, all right. And so... So um, w- the way that we had set this up, as we probably do need to talk about, is that I heard I heard you talk about wanting to do this book. You plan to do this book. You throw out uh, December twenty eighth, nineteen eighty six, as the day that is going to be the one day that you're going to write about. And by the way, listeners, if you get the book, you will see that the book begins. It's a chronological book with different things that happened on December twenty eighth, starting right after midnight on uh, the morning of December 28th and going up to the end of December 28th. So there are all kinds of different stories of different humans based on that. But I wrote to you, I told you December 28th, 1986 was my 30th birthday. Um, I was married at the time to the love of my life. It was the, she, on my birthday, she gave me a brick, which was a Sony, a Sony disc player. She hold that all the way from Boston where we were living to Iowa where we were visiting at the time and gave it to me literally within minutes of me waking up. Um, and I wrote to you about that and I also wrote about being transgender and trying my best in 1986 to try and stay a man because I loved her so much and I did not want to lose her. Have we ca- encapsulated it pretty well? <laughs> Absolutely. 
you know, I, I should interject something here. Um, you pointed out to me that at one point in this chapter, I quoted you describing yourself as transsexual, and you said that I got that wrong, and I believe you're right, I got that wrong. You had said transgender. So I would just like to clear that up. Thanks. Thank you for that. I really appreciate that greatly. So, Gene, um, you know, I've got to tell you, just from the standpoint of being the subject of a book, which, you know, I've been the subject of news uh, magazine articles or newspaper articles before, but never of a book. I just want to tell you, and I want our listeners to know, you are like one of the most thorough journalists I've ever encountered. I mean, you wanted you. you wanted to interview me on the phone. I think we had, what, six or seven different interviews. And, you know, then many, many uh, emails back and forth. And I just want to compliment you. I mean, I know why you're a Pulitzer Prize winning writer, because you are so incredibly professional and so incredibly good. And, by the way, an excellent writer. I mean, a phenomenal writer. So there you go. Thank you. The best thing you could tell me, and I'm sort of asking if it's true, do you feel I captured the truth of your story? Oh, abs- yes, for sure. There's no, you know, okay, there's no good. question you captured the truth, the truth and the essence of my story. And, you know, and um, it was... It was and, and remains, a, you know, a pivotal – obviously, the whole – my whole life is organized around it. So um, – and I can tell you, Gene, I mean, the stuff that I have discovered since I transitioned genders about the way the world works. I mean, earlier on, you used the phrase human condition when you talked about how you do your writing. I mean, that's what your focus is. And just by coincidence, I don't even know if you knew this about me, but I, I frequently speak – about all of us attempting to survive the human condition and about how that's the thing we have in common. I mean, all of us are trying to make our way to survive the human condition. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, there are certain things that you... I, I'm a natural-born cynic, uh, you know, and, and I almost take pride in that, and I, I almost have to take pride in that because most of the work I do is humor writing. And, you know, humor writing has to find... The absurdity in life, and you know, it has to deal with the silliness of people, etc. But what I find is that the, the more I get to know people, the more alike we are in important ways. You know, we're obviously unlike each other in many ways, such as politics and the current divide in this country. You know, yep. etc. But you know, we all love our children. Uh, <laughs> You know, there are certain things that bind us that are very, very positive. And almost against my will, as I've grown older in this business, the more I've sort of had to acknowledge to myself, we're better than I thought we were as a, as a species. Well, you know, Gene, it's so interesting that you say that because as I've done my work, you know, I, I get to use my imagination now um, because when I was a lawyer, they have all these rules. You can't use your imagination. And one of the things I've come up with to talk about surviving the human condition in common is a thing I call the four commonalities, that all humans have four core things in common. And one of those, the very first core uh, of the four commonalities is that we all want a child in our life to succeed. We do. No one doesn't want a kid to succeed. And right, and I think we also fundamentally want our children to be better off than we are. We even do. you know, yep. even if we're egomaniacs, we you know, and and we don't want our neighbor to be better off than we are. We want we want our kids to be better off than we are. 
We do. And that, well, that's a transcending American value um, that uh, is getting really trampled right now, of course, uh, due to economics and a whole lot of other things. But yes, I agree with that. So, so Gene, you know, you are, I mean, you are a phenomenal writer and you could write, you could write anything uh, that you wanted. Why is it that you write about humans trying to make their way? Why is that? Because that is idealistic. That is, I mean, that's really why I wanted you on this show. As I, as I look through your book, I mean, it's very, very clear and your work. Well, there's a complicated answer to that. Uh, I, I basically do two things. Uh, I try to be funny, sometimes in a jerky way, and I try to seize eternal truths and verities that are often very sad. Um, one of the stories I'm best known for was a, a look at parents who have accidentally left yep. their children in hot cars to die. Um, I frankly, you know, if I did only that kind of story, I would wind up being a brooding melancholic, you know, Raskolnikov right. wandering the planet. Um, so, in, you know, in a way, humor underwrites my ability to tackle much more difficult subjects. And another thing that I have noted, um, I think, is that I think humor and tragedy are two sides of the same thing. They're, they're, you know, it, it's like um, matter and energy. You know, you, the, the world is a scary place. And you can react in one of two ways. You can cry or you can laugh. And they're both valid reactions. Right. Well, humor is also disarming to people who expect something else. Um, I mean, I'm finding that. I'm trying to use humor, humor as much as I can, particularly when I'm standing in front of audiences that think I'm going to come in and yell at them or scream at them, which I don't do. But, Gene, what is it in your back? Do people have that? Expectation of you, really? I'm surprised. Abs- abs- you, you deliver something entirely different. Well, I do deliver something entirely, but see what many, I mean, I, I stood in a community outside of Minneapolis a, a couple of weeks ago where uh, there's a lot of religious conservatism, and they thought I was going to come in and yell at them. And instead, I came in and I, Gene, I literally, I, the very first thing I said to them was, I'm no one special. I'm just simply a survivor of the human condition. It's just that my survivorship is far more public because my voice doesn't match my appearance. They did not expect that. And later on, I, I mean, they were so respectful. We had a great dialogue. We went more than a half hour longer than what we were supposed to because they wanted to continue to have a conversation. So, but, That's great. Yeah, no. But, but Gene, what is it about – what, ha- what is it about you growing up? Did you have a role model? Did you have somebody in your life that said, you know, listen, you know, this, there's a, a, a million ways to make this world a better place. And um, you need to just go find one of those ways. I mean, because your work does make the world a better place, Gene. I want you to know that it does. So how – what happened to you? How did you get Something this way? Something else happened. Yes. <laughs> The opposite happened. Um, I had a mother who was a teacher, and she believed that you that a child should study at the rate the child is capable of studying. She didn't think at all about emotions, really. Okay. So I I skipped constantly uh, to the point where, where I I entered college at sixteen. And that was intellectually liberating, 
but emotionally it was terrifying. Um, and the, the, the first way this manifested itself was in second grade when I was constantly bursting into tears. Um, and I realized that I was embarrassing myself and that I was sticking out like a sucked thumb, you know? <laughs> you know? Right, right. So, so um, I willed myself for the next school year to not feel anything. Uh, I, I literally worked on not crying. Um, to the point where when I entered fourth grade, I was a different kid. I was sort of a machine. I was funny, because that's a real refuge of someone who right. is not going to cry or feel things. Um, and it took me half my life to overcome that. <laughs> and and I think one of the reasons that um, I have written and can write with real empathy is that I'm making... I have always made, and you know, from the time I was 18, a real effort to overcome the tendency to not cry, to not feel. It's been a process. Believe it or not, it's still going on. I, I, I don't, Gene, I don't doubt that. I mean, I think that we're, we're in process all the way until the last breath, okay? You know, the question yeah. is whether we allow that process or whether we resist it and whether, you know, I mean... Well, you know, you're, you're just touching me, and I want you to know this, my friend. I mean, you're touching me when you use the word empathy, and, 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 and it comes so through with your writing, Gene. I mean, listeners, you please, if you know, go out and buy one day, but look at Gene's other writings. I mean, just look, Google him on, you know, uh, life, and you're going to find uh, what else he's written. But Gene, this thing, you know the, that... The only thing I would, I would correct you on, Ellie, there... And I think it's it's important to make this correction. Yep. Your readers should go out and buy two copies of one day. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry. I just had to clap. Yes. <laughs> okay. I, I, all right. We're back to reality now. <laughs> and look, though. Look, I get serious with you, okay? And look how you deflect, all right? And I just... Exactly. You know, but here's the deal, okay? And you know this. And see, I did not understand this until I could finally live as me, Gene, okay? I mean, I su- when I was suppressing me, trying to stay as a man, there was no way I could ever write, okay? Because how can you write if you're not writing authentic- authentically? But what I, I absolutely believe that. But what, yes. I, what I have found, Gene, what I have found is that words are powerful. And that people, the thing about words, the written word, is that people can pick them up and put them back down and then come back to them. Versus the spoken word, which is like, what was that? Oh, I don't know exactly if I got that. And so I think that as writers, and I'm a very small writer compared to you, of course, but we're still both in the same business. I think as writers, we have this profound responsibility. Um, and 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 in my my take on the responsibility is the responsibility to make the world a better place. I'll go along with that too. So, you know, I just I just got to tell you, I um, uh, well, where uh, are are you going to be on tour with the book one day? Where the, the two copies that you want everybody to buy? Are you going to be on? <laughs> are you going to be on tour? Are you coming to Minneapolis? Uh, to, to I I doubt it. My my publisher is not big on tours. They're big on different types of publicity. Uh, if if any of your people want to travel in the next three days, I'm going to be at the big Miami Book Fair. Oh, okay. But that you know, that's the last big venue that I know of for at least a while. Okay, okay. Well, uh, there is there is a TV show, um, Forty Eight Hours, 
that is working on one chapter. They're doing a story on one chapter from the book, a chapter about a heart transplant. Okay. Um, and that's going to be coming out in February. And it, it sounds like it's going to be sensationally good. Okay. All right. Well, that's all right. Well, that's great to hear. Um, and and the, you know the last thing I would tell you, Gene, about what you wrote about me. I mean, you were pronoun proper. You you got you had the right pronouns in the book, and you know, and and I'm just very thankful for that. We're going to have to actually wrap it up. I, Gene, I just want you to know this, okay? And I mean this with all my heart. You're one of my heroes. You are. You are. You're well, going. You know what? In some way, you're one of my heroes. <laughs> I think what you went through and how you came out on the other end was really inspiring. Oh, well, thanks. But I, I mean, you, you have just plugged away. You've created this great um, writing style. And I just, uh, I just want you to know, Gene, and, and to the, you know, this might sound silly, okay, but to the extent I can ever do anything for you, please let me know, okay? Um, because I, I, I care about you and I really care about what you're doing. So thank you for being on my radio show. It was great to be here. Well, thank you. Listeners, we've been speaking with Gene Weingarten, the author of One Day, The Extraordinary Story of an Ordinary 24 Hours uh, in America. Uh, Gene, thanks so very much for being on LE 2.0 Radio. Uh, listeners, when we come back, we'll do my C block and we'll take it from there. Thanks so very much. We'll be back in a second. Better Futures Minnesota impacts the community by addressing root causes of poverty, homelessness, dependency on public assistance, and high rates of untreated trauma that often lead to incarceration. The lives of men served have been marked by chaos, violence, and loss, which contribute to feelings of devaluation, rage, and lost human potential. Healings from this trauma is essential before participants can succeed as workers, fathers, and responsible community members. Learn how you can support our efforts at BetterFuturesMinnesota.com. Branding Electrolysis on Grand Avenue in St. Paul has been a leader in permanent hair removal for people of all skin types and backgrounds for over 30 years, celebrating diversity and priding themselves on finding the right treatment plan for each client's individual needs, regardless of race or gender. Services include electrolysis, body waxing, facials, microneedling, and permanent makeup. Book your 60-minute complimentary consultation, including a 15-minute treatment today, for beautiful, lasting results. Visit BrendingElectrolysis.com. We're back on AM 950 LE 2.0 Radio. Okay, Gene Weingarten, let me just tell you, uh, he's, he's something, someone to listen to, someone who's got great perspective, and, oh, and by the way, phenomenal writer. Of course, of course. I mean, two-time Pulitzer Prize, prize winner. So go check out the one-day book. Uh, remember, though, what I said. I, he, he made a mistake in quoting me. No, no criticism, Gene. It's just we all get things wrong. Okay. All right. So um, now you have heard me speak about working in greater Minnesota. Um, you know I do that. You know that I go around – well, I go around North America training on human inclusivity, human inclusivity, the extent to which a human feels as if they matter to an organization or the group of other humans. Um, but I'm trying to do more in greater Minnesota as well as the greater Midwest because the demographics are changing. There are more people of color other than the white color showing up 
in these areas, um, more people with different religions, uh, more people with just being different. There are absolutely far more LGBTQ people in greater Minnesota and the greater Midwest than anybody knows. Uh, the problem that you d- we don't know a whole lot about the numbers is because people are darn scared about coming out, about being visible in the greater Midwest, greater Minnesota if you're LGBTQ. What are they afraid of? They're afraid of being ostracized. Some are afraid of losing their jobs. Others are afraid of physical harm. I know. I hate saying that. I really do. And then in greater Minnesota, greater uh, Midwest, there are you know other people who are invisible, like our vets. I mean, our vets are in, veterans are incredibly important. But um, many times they have difficulty getting a job. And then people with disabilities are also invisible. So last <clears> – <throat> so uh, recently I was in Mankato. Um, and I went – I was set to go down to Mankato to speak at a Unitarian church in the evening. Um, and as it turned out, I got a request from uh, Legal Aid, Southern Minnesota Regional Legal Services, SMURLs. They're a Mankato office. Let me just tell you, Legal Aid, incredibly important. Please support Legal Aid in, uh, in Minnesota, okay? Please write them a check. Christmas is coming up. Write them a check. They're very important. So the Smurls office in Mankato reached out to me, asked me to come and do a pro bono training. That would be a free training. And I said, okay, great, but can you work it out because I, I'm going to be down in Mankato that e- one evening. Can you do it during the day? And it worked out. So I went down there in late afternoon before the talk at the Unitarian Church. And I spoke at a downtown law firm in a conference room, trained about 30 lawyers and then some other folks, support colleagues, Four lawyers and, well, a couple of people just from the community. Um, all but two people in that room of uh, 30 uh, – I think it was 32 actually – but all but two people in that room were of the white color. And a lot of them were men. One of the people of color was an African uh, – was from an African-American nation. He was uh, – excuse me. That was the wrong way to say that. He was of African descent. He was an immigrant. It turned out he was not a lawyer, um, but that he was a teacher at the local community college. Now, gray area thinking, the training that I did on human inclusivity has an audience participation component. And while I wondered if uh, people in Mankato would be willing to participate, I mean, some looked very hesitant. Um, uh, but you know what? Everybody participated in the exercise. It involves some vulnerability. It involves some uh, sharing about personal identities if they want to share. Um, it involves some sharing about uh, challenges involved with just simply surviving the human condition. Uh, this man, the the man of African descent who was an immigrant, his name was Abdi, and I have, by the way, I have his permission to share his name. He shared about often... Uh, all too often being the only one like him in a room and about getting what I call the look. Now, I talk about getting the look because right now you're hearing what sounds like a man's voice. I can assure you if you're on Facebook Live looking at me right now, I've got long blonde hair um, and I don't look too bad for a 62-year-old chick. Um, But I'm very often – I get the look because when people hear my voice the very first time, they react – And sometimes it's by giving me literally a look. I can see it in their eyes. And Abdi talked about him being the one, the only one in the room who gets the look as well. So we shared that commonality, that element of surviving the human condition together. 
Overall, the training um, in Mankato went well for the Smurls folks. Um, someone even on the way out told me it was the best training they'd ever been to. Okay, there's Ellie's ego showing up. Sorry. Uh, but the next morning after the training, I had an email from Abdi. It was a very long email. He wrote to thank me um, for doing the training and affirmed, quote, the efficacy of your effort to create a better world one room at a time, unquote. In other words, he helped support me by telling me what I was doing was right and that it was helpful. And then in his email, he talked about the challenges that diverse people like him have in greater Minnesota and said that while my work was good, he feared that it wasn't enough to, quote, make a dent in the damage that is being done to future generations and the most vulnerable in kindergarten to 12th grade across the country, unquote. In other words, Ellie Krug, you're doing good work, but there's only one of you. We need more in order to change the way things are. He thanked me for using my privilege to effect change. And um, I cannot stress to you enough, as a white-colored uh, transgender woman, let's just go with woman, how, do, how about that? White-color woman with education and resources, I'm well aware of the privilege that I have. Didn't understand that back when I still lived as a white-colored attack dog lawyer man, um, ostensibly sprayed as well. Um, I didn't understand that back then about the degree of privilege I had. I understand it now way better. And I'm just here to tell you, Abdi is right. I'm using my privilege as much as I can as a tool to get me to places to say things that only white-colored people can say to other white-colored people to benefit people who are not of the white color and who are otherwise other in our society. Um... Abdi's email was important for me because it told me that my instincts are good about um, doing more work outside the cities, but it also confirmed that my work is daunting. After I got Abdi's email, I reached out to someone I know who knows someone very big here in Minnesota. And I asked my friend to ask if it's possible for me to talk to that very big person to urge that there be more done here in Minnesota for people who are other. Stay tuned on that. We'll see. My idealism is very strong, my friends. With your support, and I'm, dare I say it, your prayers, I will keep on pushing. Because no one should ever feel lesser in our state or in our country because of what makes them feel different. No one should ever feel lesser because they are different or other. No one. All humans, all humans deserve the chance to thrive in America. And I will do my best, I promise you, to help try and make that happen and get past these silly things that we use to separate ourselves from one another. All right. Well, I hope you've enjoyed the show. Uh, you've been listening to me, 
Ellie Krug on Ellie 2.0 Radio. I need to give a big shout out to my sponsors, Brending Electrolysis. Contact Bev over in St. Paul. Let her know that I recommended you. She does such great work. And uh, my other sponsor, Better Futures Minnesota, which is doing very incredible work, giving people second chances. Big shout out to my producer, Brett Johnson. Brett, uh, for this show, had to go through a couple of extra hurdles. Brett, you know I love you. And a big shout out to you all, my listeners. Thank you so very much for supporting my work. Thank you for showing up. Thank you for thank you for doing your best every day to get past the way that we other humans. I'll be back to you next week with another show. Take care. Bye-bye.